0: Let's get philosophical. Critical Reflections on Conspiracy Theory Theory Authored by Curtis Hagen. The following is a highly abbreviated and slightly modified reading of part of an article titled Do Conspiracies Tend to Fail? Philosophical Reflections on a Poorly Supported Academic Meme which was published in the journal Episteme in 2022, by Curtis Hagen.
1: Do conspiracies tend to fail? Part 1 – General Considerations and Reflections on a Paper by Brian Keeley The idea that conspiracies tend to fail is often offered as justification for dismissing conspiracy theories. However, I argue— This idea is not well-grounded and does not provide a strong reason for skepticism about conspiracy theories. There is little reason, prima facie, to think that conspiracies do tend to fail. We don't have strong grounds to believe, for example, that most petty conspiratorial crimes are foiled, or that covert operations are either exposed or backfire. After all, it is difficult to know how many succeed. If we are to be confident that conspiracy theories can be dismissed because conspiracies tend to fail, we need a substantial argument showing that the relevant kinds of conspiracies actually do fail. But such an argument, I maintain, appears to be lacking. Responding to the idea that conspiracies tend to fail, the philosopher David Cody writes,
2: The argument that conspiracies tend to fail because they always or usually end up being exposed is mistaken in two ways. First, there is no reason to believe the premise is true. Second, the conclusion does not follow from the
1: premise. Supporting the first point, that there is no reason to believe that conspiracies are usually exposed, Cody points out that no examples of secrets that have been kept successfully to this day can be offered, no matter how numerous they are. So, we cannot determine the fraction of exposed conspiracies relative to the total number of conspiracies, including both those revealed and those not revealed, because we have no way of knowing the number of those not revealed. Further, based on what we do know, Cody rhetorically asks, Does the U.S. government regularly engage
2: in conspiratorial and clandestine operations? No one familiar with U.S. history could think otherwise.
1: This consideration actually gives us a reason to think that certain kinds of conspiracies do not tend to fail, at least in the sense of their specific details becoming widely known. Supporting Cody's second point, that the tendency of conspiracies to be exposed does not imply that they have a tendency to fail, Cody points out that temporary and imperfect secrecy is sufficient for the success of many conspiracies. So, just because a conspiracy is exposed, that does not mean that the conspiracy failed. The conspiracy only needs to be sufficiently secret long enough for the purposes of the conspirators to be achieved or their interests furthered. The orchestrated propaganda apporting the Iraq War could be considered an example. At least some fairly mainstream sources accept this as having been a genuine conspiracy, but this acceptance came too late to have any substantial impact. However, it could be responded that, for a conspiracy, being exposed is a kind of failure. And it is indeed the kind of failure that is relevant in addressing the plausibility of conspiracy theories that have been around for a considerable time. However, one may reasonably wonder whether different conspiracies requiring different degrees of secrecy have corresponding differences in design, execution, and cover-up efforts. And so, one cannot draw a firm conclusion about conspiracies that would seem to require long-lasting secrecy from facts about the revelation of conspiracies that did not require such long-lasting secrecy to achieve their goal and avoid serious blowback. Further, the sort of secrecy that a conspiracy requires should be considered. Generally, it is not necessary that nobody besides the conspirators knows about it. It may be enough that the majority of the most relevant population does not believe it, or even just feels powerless to do anything about it. This may require nothing more than plausible deniability. The above considerations notwithstanding, the claim that conspiracies tend to fail continues to be made in ways that seem to cast doubt on the plausibility of conspiracy theories. For example, in a recent survey of the social science literature on conspiracy theories, Karen Douglas and her colleagues remark.
0: Conspiracies such as the Watergate scandal do happen, but because of the difficulties inherent in executing plans and keeping people quiet, they tend to fail.
1: They cite four sources, giving the impression that this is a fact that has been established in the literature. However, none of these sources provide convincing evidence in support of this claim, and only one, Grimes 2016, really tries to do this. I will address that paper in some detail in part two of this podcast series. Of the remaining three citations, two are not really germane. One is specifically about accounting fraud, and it does not suggest that conspiracies to commit such fraud tend to fail. And the other, by Karl Popper, is about what he calls the conspiracy theory of society, which imagines that conspirators are controlling everything. It argues that this must be wrong because, quote, nothing ever comes off exactly as intended, unquote. Popper's argument does not provide strong reasons to think that less radical conspiracies tend to fail. The final article, by philosopher Brian Keeley, is more relevant. However, it provides little support for the notion that conspiracies tend to fail, as will be discussed. It is worth noting, First, that after Douglas and colleagues claim that conspiracy theories tend to fail, they assert, in the very next sentence.
0: When conspiracies fail or are otherwise exposed, the appropriate experts deem them as having actually occurred.
1: In support of this claim, they cite a 2007 article by Neil Levy entitled Radically Socialized Knowledge and Conspiracy Theories. But that article, which does seem to assume something like this, does not actually provide any evidence for it. In fact, unless the claim is understood as a tautology, where exposure is defined in terms of expert acceptance, the idea that the appropriate experts will endorse the claims of whistleblowers appears to be empirically false. For leaks, confessions, and such, do not reliably lead to experts and mainstream sources deeming that a conspiracy actually occurred. That shouldn't be too surprising. After all, determining whether or not experts should affirm such leaked allegations of conspiracy, in any particular case, is often a non-trivial task. Let's turn now to Keeley's article. Strictly speaking, it does not argue that conspiracies tend to fail. It does however make some incidental remarks about the likelihood of explosive secrets being successfully kept. Specifically, regarding conspiracy theories about the Oklahoma City bombing, Keeley writes.
2: It is impossible to believe that not a single member of the BATF stationed in Oklahoma would be moved by guilt, self-interest, or some other motivation to reveal that agency's role in the tragedy, if not to the press, then to a lover or a family member.
1: While seemingly reasonable, this is really an expression of personal incredulity stated as though it is an objective fact. By citing Keeley in the way that they did, Douglas et al. give the appearance of objective grounding to an idea that is, it now appears, grounded merely in incredulity that may not be warranted. Indeed, as far as this quotation goes, the idea that conspiracy theories tend to fail seems more a premise than a conclusion. Keeley does offer some support for that premise, however, which I'll get to in a moment. But first notice some problems with Keeley's inference. He seems to be arguing, one, if the B.A.T.F. was involved, someone would have talked. Two, nobody did. Three, therefore, the B.A.T.F. was not involved. However, not only is the first premise questionable, the second one is as well. We have no idea how many secrets of the kind in question were told to friends, lovers, and relatives. In general, we just don't have any access to that type of information. If a secret is passed in this way, it may just stop there. Or, it may spread a bit among a few other intimates. Or, it may spread a bit further and become a rumor within certain circles. Most people would have no knowledge of these minor leaks. If the rumors spread even further, we might hear of it. But even if we did, it would just be a rumor to us. Further, in general, It is not true that such rumors reliably bring down conspiracies, nor is it true that such rumors do not exist in relation to mature conspiracy theories. Some of these are more than mere rumors, they are descriptions of earwitnesses of confessions or at least of seemingly self-incriminating statements. Examples regarding the JFK case include the following, E. Howard Hunt, a CIA operative and convicted Watergate conspirator, made a deathbed confession, regarding the JFK assassination, though he admits only to being a bench-warmer on the periphery of the plot. In addition, while apparently intoxicated, David Morales, a senior CIA official who was reportedly involved in assassination plots against Castro and in other controversial covert CIA operations, is reported to have made a seemingly incriminating exclamation about the JFK assassination. Specifically, regarding JFK, Morales said, "Quote." We took care of that son of a bitch, didn't we? Also, regarding the assassination of Martin Luther King, a man named Lloyd Jowers confessed to playing a small role, and he implicated government agencies. A jury agreed in a civil case brought by the King family, but the government just poo-pooed the whole thing, and the media paid little attention. I offer these examples not as evidence of government involvement in these assassinations. Here they serve as evidence that confessions and self-incriminating statements are not enough to turn a conspiracy theory into an acknowledged fact. For it is often hard to know how much stock one should put in such statements. After all, in addition to the examples I have mentioned, there are many more clearly dubious confessions or self-incriminating statements. And there is no shortage of interesting borderline cases. Now back to Keeley's reasoning. As a way of supporting the claim quoted above, Keeley notes, Government agencies, even
2: those as regulated and controlled as the military and intelligence agencies, are plagued
1: with leaks and rumors. However, it is not clear how true this is or what the implications are. First, there is an important difference between a leak and a rumor. Rumors are generally given little weight and even more clearly fail to bring down conspiracies. Indeed, rumors are not that different from conspiracy theories themselves. Second, it is not clear that intelligence agencies are plagued by leaks, constantly foiling their covert operations and outing their operatives. That actually seems fairly rare, given that such operations are presumably continuously ongoing. And so, thinking about the military and intelligence agencies, again, suggests that certain types of conspiracies do not tend to fail in the relevant sense. Healy also asserts. To propose that an explosive secret could be closeted
2: for any length of time simply reveals a lack of understanding of the nature of modern bureaucracies.
1: That seems to be a common view. But not every informed and sophisticated person shares it. Fletcher Prouty, author of The Secret Team, for example, does not seem to agree. And Prouty had relevant first-hand knowledge of how plans were compartmentalized to help maintain secrecy and assure that the explosiveness of any particular leak would be limited. Prouty was the liaison between the military and the CIA in the early 1960s. He also suggests that some secret keepers are professional secret keepers. And their reliability as secret keepers shouldn't be conflated with that of loose-lipped
3: political operatives. In addition, philosopher, Lee Basham remarks, Keeley overlooks the implications of the remarkably hierarchical nature of our civilization's institutions of commerce and control. Far from supposing that leaks inevitably expose the explosive secrets of conspiracy, we might reason that the more fully developed and high-placed a conspiracy is the more experienced enable its practitioners at controlling information and either co-opting, discrediting or eliminating those who go astray or otherwise encounter the truth. We do know this. The existence of openly secretive governmental and corporate institutions is the norm in contemporary civilization. Despite the occasional leaks they appear to have been quite successful in their control of extremely disturbing information. This is all the greater an achievement given their status as widely recognized agencies of secrets and secret projects. We can only boggle at the difficulties of reliably revealing the aims and means of competent organizations that systematically hide their very existence. As for the press,
1: Basham has emphasized that some stories are too toxic to report. In that context, even if a few individual reporters believe that a story deserved to be told, they may easily be thwarted by their superiors. Knowing that bucking the system in such a case would likely be career-limiting, few would attempt it. And those that try, ostracized by the mainstream, would typically have only marginal influence anyway. Since this is predictable, there is little incentive to buck the system. Or, at least, such a dynamic is plausible and should not be summarily dismissed. Admittedly, Basham's considerations are far from decisive. The adequacy of his reasoning and evidence, in comparison to Keeley's, could be debated at length. But the important point here is precisely that, contrary to the impression given by Douglas et al., the degree to which the truth about a conspiracy may be effectively repressed, even if it is not fully concealed, is not a settled matter. Even Keeley himself gives us a reason to think that the kinds of conspiracies in question might not tend to fail. He writes.
2: The conspiracy theorist is working in a domain where the investigated actively seeks to hamper the investigation. As evidenced by any number of 20th century, US government-sponsored activities, take your pick, we have reason to believe that there exist forces with both motive and capacity to carry out effective disinformation
1: campaigns. Taking all this into consideration we can't say with justified confidence that conspiracies of the kind in question will tend to fail on account of the inability of people to keep quiet. And so, we can't dismiss conspiracy theories on the assumption that, if true, they would have been revealed. Even Keeley admits, ultimately, that.
2: The best we can do is track the evaluation of given theories over time and come to some consensus as to when belief in the theory entails more skepticism than we can stomach.
1: In conclusion, we have seen that there are general reasons to be skeptical regarding the claim that conspiracies tend to fail. We don't know how many may have succeeded. And we have reason to believe that some kinds of conspiracies, covert operations, are kept secret pretty well. Further, it seems that, of the four articles that Douglas and colleagues cite to support the notion that conspiracies tend to fail, two of them offer no support, and one offers weak and questionable support at best. That leaves one article remaining to be considered, namely, Grimes 2016, which is titled, On the Viability of Conspiratorial Beliefs. Of the four works cited by Douglas and her colleagues, that is the only one that really even attempts to provide a substantial argument in support of the notion that conspiracies, at least large ones, tend to fail. But does it succeed? That will be the topic of our next podcast.
0: You have been listening to a highly abbreviated and slightly modified reading of part of an article titled Do Conspiracies Tend to Fail? Philosophical Reflections on a Poorly Supported Academic Meme which was published in the journal Episteme in 2022 by Curtis Hagen.